Hello, and thank you for tuning in to the Central Church of Christ podcast. We're so glad you've joined us today. Just as a heads up, we are holding in-person services every Sunday at 10.30 a.m. Also, if you'd like to join us for a to-go meal, we are serving those every Wednesday through our Bread of Life Cafe at 5.30 p.m. If you'd like to get more connected to our church, feel free to email centralchurch1 at gmail.com or call us at 513-481-5820. We look forward to hearing from you. And now, let's get back to the podcast. I'll be reading from John 7, verses 1 through 24. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea, so that your disciples may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe him. Therefore, Jesus told them, My time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival. I am not going up to this festival, because my time has not yet fully come. After he had said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the festival, he went also, but not publicly, in secret. Now at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, Where is he? Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he is a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly for fear of the leaders. Not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews there were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having been taught? Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether their teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own word. Whoever speaks with, excuse me, um, whoever speaks on their own does not gain personal glory, does so to gain personal glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth, and there is nothing false about him. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? You are a demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who is trying to kill you? Jesus said to them, I did one miracle, and you are all amazed. Yet, because Moses gave you circumcision, although actually it did not come from Moses, but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. But now, if a boy is circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may, be, may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearance, but instead judge correctly. Morning, everyone. Julie, welcome back with your awesome news. Praise Jesus for that. Chuck and Sandy, so glad to have you here too. What an awesome morning. It's good to worship Jesus with all of you. 
Brooklyn, thank you for leading us in such a great time of worship so far. I mean, I'm just amazed that our God is so faithful to bring us all here today. So let's open up with a prayer, and then we're going to dive right into this message in this passage. Heavenly Father, may the words of my lips be acceptable in your sight. May we, as a church, hear what you have to say through your scriptures. And would your spirit just remind us of who we need to be and what our role is in this world. And let us be faithful to your calling in our lives to be like Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So today's message is testifying about the world. Jesus is, uh, this is almost the sequel to what we just read about in chapter 6. Chapter 6, Jesus does this amazing miracle where he feeds 5,000 people plus some, you know, it's many thousands of people, feeds them with one guy's groceries essentially. And this is the direct follow-up where Jesus' brothers are going to confront him and say, look, you just did something amazing. You need to capitalize on that, basically. So I want you to imagine if, for some reason, if any of you are the kind of person that's like, I want to run for office one day. That is not me, by the way, but if, if that's you, I just want you to imagine that you want to run for office one day. All of the pieces are starting to fit together. The perfect storm is happening. And then you look to your most trusted friends, your family members, and you're like, I think it's time, right? I think it's time for me to finally run for office. And they look at you and say, look, all, everything is falling into place. You will certainly win if you run for office now. That's what's going on in this passage. Jesus is showing symbols that he is Israel's Messiah. And his brothers are looking at him and saying, like, everything is coming together. You need in this moment to take advantage of that if you are the messiah time to go down to judea and let's make this thing happen so what's really going on jesus is not going to just play nice (laughs) with what they're doing though because jesus is going to talk about the world so i put the greek up there just so you can see this because i'm going to repeat this several times on the slides and i hope that you can really just gain a visual for what's going on here. But in our passage today, we learn about the world. The brothers are going to say, show yourself to the world. This ha-cosmos, the cosmos, is the world. But we learn from Jesus' words that the world is in opposition to Jesus' mission. So here's what's going on. John loves to give us the setting for what's happening always like he's gonna if you're in English class and you're reading a novel and you're trying to figure out what's the setting John is like the master gospel artist of showing us the setting so the feast of booths or Sukkot is happening this carried messianic overtones because basically it's remembering Israel in the wilderness about to enter the promised land they're living in non-permanent residences these tents, these booths, and they're about, God is about to lead them into the land that is promised to them. So they know that they're about to go into the land that he promised. And they celebrated this year after year because it was a reminder that God is also going to fix what's wrong in Israel at the time of Jesus. So the fact that this is happening, they're like, okay, Jesus, 
it's Sukkot. It's time for you to get your stuff together. Let's go to Judea. Let's make it official. You are Israel's Messiah. But Jesus' brothers take advantage of the moment to ask Jesus to show himself to the world. In verse 4, it says this, For no one who seeks to make a reputation for himself does anything in secret. If you're doing these things, as in feeding 5,000 people, as in turning water to wine, as in making a man who couldn't walk, walk. If you're doing these things, show yourself to the world to the cosmos. Jesus claims this cosmos, the world, and by the way, every time you see the world in this passage, same word, he claims that the world hates him. It's not going to hate the brothers, but it does hate Jesus because he testifies that the world's deeds are evil. Now, you're going to like read this and think about this and you're like, this sounds pretty intense. You know, like maybe Jesus is being a little dramatic here. And I'm going to contend to you that he's not. Jesus is not being melodramatic. He's not exaggerating. He's giving the testimony of what is actually true. So as we go through the passage, this leads to a confrontation with the religious leaders now, the brothers go up to the feast, and Jesus says, I'm not going to be there. But then Jesus sneaks into the feast, right? Because he wants to just see what's going on. But it leads to a confrontation in the end with the religious leaders who are like, how is this guy teaching these people these amazing things when he hasn't had a formal education? You know, a formal education like the Apostle Paul. Jesus didn't have that kind of formal education. And then he's going to have a confrontation with them where he's going to show that the way the world operates, the cosmos, is not how the kingdom operates. So the way the world works is not how Jesus' kingdom functions. That's the gist of what's going on here. I just wanted to unpack the passage a little bit before we talk about what this means for us because this passage is rich and I wish I could just focus, I wish I could have divided this into three sermons, but again, my hope is probably a lost hope, but I want to get through the Gospel of John by the end of the year. I can do it. David Miller says I can, so it's going to happen. So we're going to just focus here on this idea that Jesus says the world hates him because he testifies that its deeds are evil. So how are you and I to testify about the world? You know, as Christians, our job is to follow Jesus. That's our job, right? It seems pretty simple. You do the things that Jesus did. You say the things that he said. You love the things that he loves. But Jesus testifies. He gives witness to the fact that the world is not doing things right. So if we follow Jesus, it only goes to show that we should be doing the same thing. But how? How are we supposed to do that? As, and it's an amazing question, and I wanted to share a story with you. Uh, Johann Christ, Christoph Arnold uh, wrote this a few years ago in an issue of the magazine Plow. He tells a story about how his church was going to handle church discipline about someone that was 
clearly caught in sin. So let me just kind of tell you this story and then his react and the person's reaction to this story. So what happened was over the years, we witnessed the disastrous results of ignoring sin or secretly hiding it. And what happened was they had this couple, there's this married couple, and then there was a single man. The single man fell in love with the married woman. This led to an affair and the congregation, the leaders in the congregation tried to do this. They tried to take each person involved in the affair separately, talk to them in secret, not make a big public deal about it. But here's what happened. You know, you d they're going in with the mentality that we don't want to embarrass people. We don't want to bring shame on our church. You know, we, we want to keep this kind of under wraps if we can. But here's, what he, here's the reaction to this. Under the excuse that church discipline was too harsh or fundamentalistic, too legalistic and too judgmental, we opted for the lie that this sin wasn't a very serious matter. At least not serious enough to bring it out into the open. Didn't we all sin? Who are we to judge? Anyway, as the modern myth goes, we thought that what people needed most was loving acceptance and space to fail, not confrontation. We were under the illusion that confrontation not only added to the pain of personal shame and self-condemnation, but perpetuated the cycle of failure. So we avoided it like the plague. Now we see that it was our so-called compassion that did the perpetuating. I know there's a lot said there, but here's the long and short of it. These people are caught in sin, and the result of it is the married couple got divorced and the single man left the church because they wanted to not talk about it because it was uncomfortable. They didn't want to deal, the, the sin wasn't serious enough to actually deal with it and to confront it as sin. That's a problem. That's a major problem. You know, we can't just allow sin to fester and go unchecked. Because it wasn't just a sin against the married, the married man. It was a sin against the whole church. It was a sin against the whole church. And we have to learn how to become people who appropriately deal with sin and testify that the world has evil within it. We can't pretend that everything is just okay. And I'm going to unpack that a little bit here with four points. One, we acknowledge that the world is capable of evil, even if we don't see it in our personal lives. This is the biggest one. I, I see this all the time. I, I hear it often that, you know what? It's not affecting me, so it must not be true. Someone else's evil hasn't touched me, but, so it's irrelevant. But that's not true. That's not the truth, because the world is capable of evil, even if our life is going wonderfully. We still have to acknowledge that the world is capable of terrible things. Just because life is going well for you in the moment doesn't mean that someone else's pain is negated because they have been affected by the fact that sin is in the world. So we can't let ourselves believe that someone else's pain is fake or that it's minimal or it's reduced. 
We have to be people of compassion, true compassion, that acknowledges that there's evil in the world. Step two, we name that evil with humility. And we cry out to God to set it right. I think everybody in this room has probably witnessed the evil that this world is capable of. It's okay to name it, though. I grew up in a culture, probably like a lot of you, that said, like, don't make a big deal of your pain. Stuff it down. Keep it, keep it back so people don't see it. Like, your pain is not for other people to see. But Jesus is very clear that he testifies that the world's deeds are evil. The way the world works is not the way the kingdom works. So in order to do that, if he's testifying about it, he's naming the fact that the way the world works is evil. He's not calling all of us just straight up evil. That's not the point. He's saying that there is sin in the world and it has infected all of us and that we are capable of terrible things that we never thought we would do. We just are. Doesn't mean that we always act on it, but you better believe that anybody in this room, including myself, is capable of the worst things. We have to acknowledge that with humility and say like, look, there's this problem in the world and we need to do something about it. So I'm going to cry out to God to set it right because it's not within my power to fix it. I need the Holy Spirit to come in and set this right. Step three, we confess the ways, and this is another super important one, we confess the ways in which we participate in the evils of the world and we turn back to the kingdom of Christ. It's, it's one thing to name the evils of the world. I think people are really good at that sometimes. But it is only in Jesus that you're going to hear people say, look, I was wrong. I've participated in the ways that the world operates. I have not reflected the best that Jesus has to offer. We have to confess that. And here's the other thing I, I get constantly, and this deal, deals with a whole range of issues, but I just want to keep it general so that maybe it can apply to your life. But if someone says, what you did or said hurt me, it is not our job to say, no, nah, that's not real pain. It's not our job to say that. It's our job to listen to that person express their pain to us and to just confess that, look, whether I purposely did that or it was an accident, I'm sorry. Because in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of God, it's a little bit different. We confess that we are sinners. And it's not like I once was a sinner. It's like, I just sinned coming into church today. It's that kind of 
continual, ongoing, I need Jesus, not just once when I was baptized, but I need him every day after. Because I need the forgiveness that he offers. Because God does things differently than the world does. We are not called to be people who say, your pain is not real and I'm not sorry. That is so anti-Christ, it's not even funny. We need to dispel that from our vocabulary, from our thoughts, from the way we operate. If someone says, you have hurt me, ask how. Confess your sorrow, your grief over how you've hurt that person, and then repent. Because if we don't do those things, the world goes on operating the way it always does, where it says, I'm right, you're wrong. That's not the calling of Jesus. The calling of Jesus is to say, look, I'm sorry that I messed up. Like, I'm sorry I hurt you. But the truth is, I'm going to repent and I'm going to do my best to not do that again. And I'm going to cry out to God once again to ask to ask that I would not be that kind of person, but I'd be the kind of person that reflects Jesus. Here's the final step. We would call each other, our brothers and sisters in Christ, to do the same thing. So we have to name the evils of the world. So name the evils. And then we have to be the kind of people that can confess and repent. Name it, confess, repent. I'm not asking you to follow that pattern religiously. I just think that's what the Bible calls us to do. And when we start doing that, we are in a position to ask our brothers and sisters to do the same with humility. We can do that. Because here's the thing. You go to a Thanksgiving dinner and it's like, Uncle Joe always talks down to so-and-so at the, at the dinner table. If Uncle Joe is a Christian, shouldn't we be telling him that you need to stop talking down to so-and-so with humility and kindness instead of just saying, that's who he is? If he's in Christ, he needs to be held to a higher standard than just talking down to people. Because that is... Just as much as it is our job personally to confess and repent, we, with humility, have to ask other people to do the same, as uncomfortable as that is. Jesus did. We're going to read in just a couple weeks a passage that might not belong in the Gospel of John, but certainly belongs in our Bible, the story of the woman caught in adultery where Jesus tells her to go and sin no more. He can even tell this woman who's vulnerable and about to be attacked by a group of men, which that story really should be called the group of men caught in hypocrisy. But seriously, he was even able to tell her to go and sin no more. If he can do that, why is it so hard for you and I to kindly but truthfully tell somebody, look, you're hurting so-and-so. 
it's time to turn back to the kingdom of Christ. We need to be able to do that. I'm not asking you to become a type A personality if you're not. I'm just saying there's a way in kindness to do that. Now, let me just finish up by saying a couple things. One, we are not to be abusive with this because I know that the scary thing is if I'm going to be calling out somebody's sin, that's not the right approach. It's not to publicly shame anybody. On the same token, we should be able to call people in. This is language borrowed from some friends in Gravity Leadership, but we need to be able to call people in to repentance, to turn the other way, to go back towards the kingdom. So it's not about calling out sin as much as it's about calling people into real and true eternal life. So we don't want to fall into a pattern of abusing this where it's like, where it becomes judgmentalism. We don't want to do that. But on the other token, just like the story I was talking about, how shameful is it to just let an affair go on because you're afraid to deal with the issue at hand? That's going to hurt so many more people than finding that issue from the start, humbly approaching those people, and asking them to repent. It's far worse to let those things fester and go on. We need to be the kind of people who have some courage. Because if we have the Holy Spirit within us, you better believe that He's going to give you courage. So don't be afraid. If somebody is wronging somebody else, to speak up and speak into their lives. Not because you want to shame them, but because you want that grief that they're going to feel to turn into a repentance that leads to true joy. But there is no joy if we don't name sin. And last thing I want to tell you is this. Like, I don't want you to hear what I'm preaching this morning and think, wow, he's, he's much more bold than I am. Truth is, like, this terrifies me. Like, that's not my most comfortable posture in life, is to call people into repentance. Man, there is no discipleship. There is no being an apprentice to Jesus if we cannot name our own sin, if we cannot then confess that sin and repent of that sin and turn back to the kingdom of Jesus. And there's no discipleship if we can't invite others to do the same. If you want to become like Jesus, which that's what being a disciple is, an apprentice of Jesus, an apprentice wants to become like the master, like the teacher, like the professional, if you want to become like Jesus, you're going to have to do the things that Jesus did. And let me just tell you, it's costly. Like, it's not always going to go well if you name sin. I hate to say that. It's not always going to go well. It's not going to be like, oh, well, I should repent. You're probably going to get pushback. You're probably going to meet, be met with some defensiveness. But let me tell you, the Holy Spirit can work through that 
and heal and restore. We can do this. The question is, do we want to be discipled enough to name our own sin, confess and repent, and then be able from that position to do that for others? Because if we can't, our witness is completely ineffective. We're not testifying to the kingdom of Jesus then. We're just repeating the same things the cosmos does, the world does. We don't want to be those people. So let me tell you some good news so it's not all like super heavy. Let me tell you some good news. You're not alone in this. It's not your solo job to find out everybody's sin in this room. That's not your job alone. The good news is, not only do you have the Holy Spirit within you, and Jesus again in John's Gospel later on, we're going to hear about how the Holy Spirit is present with us. It's God's presence within us. But we're also going to talk about this, that we have each other. John 17, I mean, God gave us each other to do this together. It's not your solo job to point out sin and ask people to repent. But when you see it, don't just let it fester and let it become something that enables people to keep doing it. Instead, let that be a moment that that person can be restored to the good life. Because they might act like they're okay, but they're not living the good life if they're living in sin. So there is good news. You're not alone. We are not alone. And we can do this. But not just we can do this, we need to do this. So let's do it together in the name of Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the gift of eternal life that Jesus has given us. Sometimes we come to this eternal life and we mess up. We opt instead for our former life instead of the life you've given us through your Holy Spirit. And in the moments that we opt for our former way of living, God, show us where we're making mistakes. Show us how we are hurting others. And let us not become so numb to the pain of others just because we don't feel pain in that moment. Because our witness to your goodness depends not only on our submission to you, but our willingness to follow through and be like you, to be people of empathy and compassion, true compassion, and to be people who are willing to tell the truth. Let us be people who tell the truth and not settle for half-truths and lies. Let us go into the world knowing that Yes, we sin, but yes, we are redeemed. And let us extend that offer to others. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'll all stand with me, I'm going to show you real quick our passage for next week. Uh, it's the rest of John 7, 25 to 52. Feel free to catch up. Jesus is going to have more for us to ponder and to learn from and to grow with. But I want to say a blessing over you And then I want to sing our doxology because we sing this every week. 
Because regardless of whether we are in sin and we need to repent or whether we have repented of sin already, we sing praise to God. And we ask that that same God who made everything, the triune God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, will be with us in our daily lives. So let me say a blessing over you, and then we're going to go out and show this world the truth. Um, And then after that, we're going to have a prayer uh, from one of our elders. Let me say a blessing over you first. Go out into this world knowing that you are gifted with the presence of the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit is the same one who convicts the world of sin and of righteousness. You're not alone. You're not abandoned. You're not an orphan. You are a child of God. So that same Spirit that's going to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness is the same one that is within you, enabling you to do the same thing. Not to lord it over other people, but to do it faithfully and in love. So go today with that truth. We're going to sing our doxology, and then Gene's going to come up and give us, uh, give us another prayer.
we're coming to the past.